Welcome to SpotCast, your single point of contact podcast brought to you by HDI on the web at thinkhdi.com. HDI, smarter service, better business. I'm your host for SpotCast, Roy Atkinson. Episode 25 of SpotCast is an interview with Claire Agater. Claire is the lead tutor of ITSM Zone, an organization that specializes in best practice e-learning. Claire is also director of Scopism and was lead architect for Verism, an approach for managing digital organizations. Claire is one of HDI's top 25 thought leaders for 2020. Hello, Claire. It is so nice to be speaking with you today. Hi, Roy. Lovely to chat. And here we are in the era of COVID-19. And a lot of what you do is online delivery, training, e-consulting, and Mm-hmm. As we speak now in March 2020, a lot of organizations are considering travel restrictions or have implemented them. And after the current wave of immediate health concerns subsides, do you expect the level of online engagements will be higher than before? Gosh, I I really hope so, because I do think there are a lot of organizations that still maybe have some misconceptions about what's possible particularly in the training world now um i mean i've been developing e-learning for 12 years now and the way that the technology's changed the way that we deliver material has changed so significantly but i still think you have people who had maybe a bad experience five six years ago with you know a, a filmed powerpoint deck or something so i think in the training world I, I would love to see more people taking online courses. I would love to see people having more of an understanding about just how good the material is online. From the consultancy side of things, that one I'm still not so sure about. So I launched um, a virtual consultancy practice coming up three years ago now. Um, So through the Scopism site, we've got the e-consultancy offering. And the idea was that we were working in hours rather than days. So for example, if somebody was in a new job, they could have somebody that they could chat to for a few hours on a Friday afternoon, just to give them some mentoring, um, some support. But to be honest, that that's not taken off at all. And I still think in the consultancy space, um, it is true that people by people and the relationships that get formed we're maybe not quite there yet, but but perhaps what we will see in in this interesting time that we live in is is perhaps we will see that people do find new ways to make these things work for them. Um, I think probably the the biggest challenge for a lot of people at the moment um, is events, and we're seeing some events going ahead, some events being cancelled. Um, I'm busy organising our Service North event for October. But even now, there's there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, and I think online events is something that I would love to see some innovation happening in that space. I did a, a Twitter poll last week and I asked people, you know, in in these times that we're living in, what do you think about online events compared to face-to-face and some people said yeah I'd go if it was free some people said I'd pay to attend but the majority said you know what it's not for me but we can do amazing things with software these days so maybe we will see some real innovation and, and something develop that 
actually facilitates networking in an online space. When you talked about consultancy and then talking about events, it seems that people really do get something extra out of that in-person contact, Mm. whether it's being a consultant, working closely with people inside an organization or doing networking at an event. And, and I just, I think that's interesting. So software hasn't replaced people at least at yes. this point, right? <laughs> right. We've got good products, but. Yeah, that there's an amazing word, um, agglomeration, which is used to describe kind of the benefits you get when you, you put a selection of firms and people together. The ideas that come out of that are, are greater than any of those firms or people could produce on their own and I think we've we've probably both seen it in our careers is that some of the best thing, things that you do come out of the most random places you know you you chat to somebody on a train and you, you come out with a, a completely different idea um, or you know you meet somebody at a conference and that that turns into a new business venture or whatever it might be so you know you look at things like Slack is is a tool that that's being used in so many organisations now, and it's brilliant. But I think it also still contributes to that feeling of overload. Um, you know, you've got your email to look after, you've got your social media. Now you're supposed to be taking part in Slack conversations as well, and it's it's kind of finding that that balance of where is the technology helping us and where is it actually disrupting what we're doing and and you know we at ITSM zone we're a virtual company we've we've got staff in several different countries we don't have a head office so we are quite used to working virtually but we do still see the benefit of getting the team together a couple of times a year and just you know really brainstorming together and it does introduce things that that don't happen with the technology that we use so you talked about the, some of the various organizations that you certainly are central to and have formed. And you're a woman. You're in a technology mm-hmm. field, which yep. in, in itself puts you in a kind of a minority position. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about a little bit about ha- how to promote inclusion in the industry. Is it enough to, to, to make sure that we've got women on panels at conferences and that we include women in webinars and so forth when we have multiple presenters. What do you think, are we on the right track by doing that and being careful about it? Or is there, I I would think there's more to be done, but what do you see as, as fruitful? This, this is a tough one because I think there's, there's more initiatives, events, groups for women in tech than there have ever been before but what the the diversity statistics are showing is that that's having very little impact on the level of women in senior positions, the amount of women in tech. It's not stopping women dropping out of roles in tech. I, I do very firmly believe that people coming into the industry need to be able to see people that they can aspire to become like. So I think if you're coming into this industry as a woman, you need to be able to see women in the the higher roles, you know, being visible, doing things. And my hope would be that all of the initiatives that are happening, the women in tech events, the focus on STEM in education, you know, girls who code, 
I hope that builds a pipeline. I really, really do. But I, th- I think I think there are those little things that, that we can all do. And even being conscious of it is, is a start. Because I remember when we did our first Service North conference, so going back three years now, we did a call for papers. We had a selection process. We were looking at all the different speakers based on um, the, the quality of the submission. And we kind of put together a draft agenda and we looked at it and we went, it's all men. <laughs> how how has this happened? Um, you know, and that's that's even trying trying to think about it uh, as as you're going through the process. And what, what we did, what we found we had to do was we knew there were amazing women in the industry. We knew that they were doing brilliant things. We knew that they were compelling speakers, you know, people like Andy Kiss, Rennie Freese, amazing, amazing women. So we went and asked them. And I think sometimes you maybe need to take that extra step. Um, but the, there is where it comes from, why it happens. I, I don't know. And it's it's difficult to speak from my own personal experience because I've kind of stumbled into the roles that I'm I'm in by accident and it hasn't I don't think the fact that I'm a woman has ever particularly caused issues for me but then I've been running my own business for 12 years so you get to make different decisions then and you you may be not fighting against any institutional sexism within organizations but I I do I do think all of us as individuals can be conscious of the events that we're involved with trying to make them diverse trying to make them welcoming and and I think for me I will see it as success when we maybe don't need the women in tech events anymore and we can just have tech events that that would be kind of the aspiration for me i think that would be a good thing in my Mm, opinion yeah and uh, you of course touched on the fact that you are uh, an entrepreneur as well there's some people that um that i've had interactions with who are viewing other people by different types of status and different levels of status so um one example would be way back in ITIL version two days, um, I taught a version two manager's course in Egypt and there were two trainers running the course. So there was myself um, and a male trainer. All the delegates were male. And in the first sort of day of the course, they weren't really listening to me. They were happy to listen to the male trainer, but they weren't really listening to me until it became apparent that I was an ITIL examiner. Um, and as an examiner, I would be possibly one of the people who marked their exam papers. And I was certainly the person who was in the best place to give them guidance about the um, how to get the, the best score in the exam. And, and those two statuses then kind of played off against each other. And the examiner status ranked more highly, I think, than any concerns about the fact that I was a woman. So then they were very happy to interact. And I think... There'll always be people who are judging based on some element of how you appear, whether it is, you know, whether you're a man or a woman, whether it's the colour of your skin, whether it's how important they think you are. But I do think service management in particular 
is actually a really inclusive community. I've seen very little poor behaviour in the service management world. There's there's one or two people that I've come across that I wouldn't really want to work with again. But I think in general, we, we are a really amazing community. There's not a lot of prejudice. Um, there's a lot of volunteer programs that go on there's a lot of kind of sharing between countries and between different user groups so I don't feel that it's ever held me back I could be completely wrong and I could just be blind to it maybe I'd have been a millionaire by now um but no I there's there's very few instances in my career I think where I've looked at something and thought that's just horrific sexism and you touched there on the inclusiveness and, and the communal spirit that exists in this mm-hmm. industry. And, and of course, you and, you and I knew each other virtually before we met. Uh, and then yep. we're ships passing in the night at multiple conferences <laughs> until we finally got together and sat down and, and had a lunch together, which was lovely. Yes. Pe- people in service management tend to respect each other. And, and speaking of service management, ITIL 4 is out. It's a year old now. Mm-hmm. And ITIL has been quite the dominant framework. And we at HDI, when we do our annual research, we've seen a little bit of a drop in the use of ITIL as a framework upon which to base things like software purchases, right? Mm-hmm. People used yep. to say in a very high percentage, yes, we try to align our software to, and we've seen that drop. Do you agree with that assessment? Will ITIL 4 change as adoption ticks up? Because I think, you know, more people are being certified, more people are being trained now and at the the higher levels, you know, managing professional and so forth. So Mm. do you see that ticking up? I need to try and answer this in a concise way because I could I could talk about this for an awfully (laughs) long long time. time. (laughs) Um, If if I look back to when I first started in the service management world, so as awful as it is going back kind of 20 years um, and taking my ITIL version 2 foundation, which at the time I think covered 11 processes and the service desk, the, the, the first thing about that situation was that it was ITIL or nothing. There was kind of ITIL and PRINCE 2. And for a lot of organisations, just having that understanding of ITIL helped them work in a consistent way. It was really tangible. It was really practical. Um, You know, we can look back on it now and say, well, maybe there were times when it felt a bit prescriptive. But in, in general, ITIL was kind of shaping operations in IT departments and service providers. What's happened since then is first the the landscape of IT has changed. So where there did used to be just ITIL, now we've got DevOps, we've got Agile, we've got Lean, we've got Siam, Verism, you know, there's so many other things that are kind of competing for attention now. And those initial elements of ITIL that that we all tend to think about when you say ITIL, you know, incident change, problem, service desk, have become kind of hygiene factors for organisations. That they're just just how we work now. It, it, you don't necessarily think of it as being well. This is how we've adopted ITIL in this organisation. It's just 
we've got customers ringing, of course we need a service desk and we need to prioritise the work. So of course we do incident management. And the software generally does that out of the box. So people don't necessarily have to develop these complex invitation to tenders because one incident workflow is 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 pretty much like another. But then looking at ITIL4 specifically, and I'm I'm saying this from the perspective of a training provider, we we kind of categorize the, the training that we sell into two main groups. And there's the first group is training products that teach people how to do jobs or how to work with systems that already exist. So things like Siam, things like the old ITIL were basically organizations saying to people, this is how we work, learn about where it's come from, and then come back and apply this in your job. Then the other type of training product is more, I think probably the word would be aspirational. It's kind of showing organizations this is potentially how you could be working or this is what you should be moving towards. And for me now, ITIL4 and other methodologies like Verism fit into that category because they're kind of reflecting the, the, the challenges that digital transformation is putting on a lot of organisations and they're suggesting possible ways to adapt to that. But, you know, when ITIL4 was first released there wasn't a single organization in the world that had a service value system that it would call a service value system. They weren't talking about service value chains. So I think what we'll see is organizations looking at ITIL for picking elements of it and, and then kind of weaving them in with everything else that they're doing. So weaving them in with their agile development teams, you know, weaving it into the the lean um, work that they're doing and 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 I think ITIL will become part of a, a sort of a set of ways of working that every organization is going to have so the the change is quite enormous and what what they've done with ITIL4 I think is is very bold and very brave um, quite how the market is going to respond to that I, I don't know yet and I think we need all of the all of the books to be published, which I think is the case now, you know, all of the training to be available. We need to start seeing ITIL4 bedding into organizations. One of the things that you touched on there is how many of the various methodologies and so forth are, are being used in the same organizations, which is something mm. we also see in our research as well. Yeah. And I think if, if we look back at some of the things that have been spoken about ITIL uh, over the years. Adopt and adapt, of course, is mm. one of the main points. So, so this is a good thing from from a lot of perspectives, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's, you know, I've I've got such almost an emotional involvement with ITIL because it's been such a big part of my career. And I remember, you know, starting out and doing my V2 foundation and just running back to work and going, oh, we need a CMDB. And everyone just looking at me and thinking, shut up, Claire. But it it, it absolutely is adopt and adapt. And it, it, it does make me a little bit 
sad to see that there there is a bit of revisionism going on, I think, and people are pointing at previous versions of ITIL and going, oh, so prescriptive, so bureaucratic. And of course it wasn't. It was just a series of books. And what you chose to do with the knowledge that was in those books is is up to you. And I think there's if if you talk to people from the DevOps community, there's there's a real misconception about how things like change management work. Um, and it's all about forms and meetings and approvals. And and change management has always just been about how do we protect the business? How do we get changes live? How do we not break things? And and over time things build up around that. But I think, you know, previous versions of ITIL did huge amounts of good in a lot of organizations and and it's important not to forget that so you've been involved very much with uh, verism since the beginning mm-hmm. and and how's how's that going how's adoption going and and is there a roadmap for verism's future yeah verism's actually going really really well so we we developed verism um based on a, a big piece of research that the International Foundation for Digital Competences, the IFDC, undertook, which was asking organisations, you know, do you feel that service management as it exists at the moment, and bear in mind this is going back sort of two years-ish before, so before ITIL 4 was, um, I wouldn't say dreamt of, but certainly released. So doing that research and asking people, you know, has service management kept up with the challenges of digital transformation? And, and the, the answer was was quite a resounding, no, it hasn't. So what we tried to do with Verism was put together service management principles for the digital organisation. So not thinking about the IT department anymore, thinking about how organisations are delivering digital products and services and that's not IT's responsibility. You know, it's everybody in the organization that has to be involved. So we we published the first book and that was kind of a, this is our suggestion of what we think Verism is. And lots of people said really, really kind things about it. But the the answer that we got back and the question we kept getting asked was, this is great. How do I do it? <laughs> and that was kind of, okay, so maybe people do want a little bit of, of prescription or do they, they do want a little bit more guidance so we um we published the second verism book which was much more a practitioner's volume you know this is how you do it so things like the the management mesh which addresses this difficulty of how do you combine devops and ITIL and agile and all of the rest of it we had much more guidance around that in the second book so beyond that and I guess in the similar way to ITIL 4, the, the proof with Verism now is how are organisations using it? Because that's how Verism is going to grow. That's how Verism is going to spread. And, and that's how it's going to develop as well, because a, a book full of good ideas is just a book until somebody actually starts using it. So um, Exin did a webinar think a couple of weeks ago with some um, Verism early adopters who have been using it in financial organisations. I've got an ITSM crowd episode coming up. Um, We've got 
Vocalink Mastercard on there. We've got a cloud startup company talking about it. And I, I think for me, a lot of this is now sharing these stories and building that community. And, and that's how Verism is, is going to grow. I don't think we'll ever see a position like we used to have where one product dominated the market. Um, but what we are seeing with Verism is the real strong interest coming from outside the IT department as well, because we we really wanted this to be an organization-wide approach. Businesses run on information technology now more than ever. Mm -hmm. And so is it, is IT still a department? Will it be a department? Is it, or is the, are those days gone? Do you think? (laughs) It's a tough one, isn't it? And I I think we had, real debates about this when we were going through the Verism author process because we used to have conference calls every week and you know you'd have maybe 10-15 people and we'd, we'd argue about a piece of terminology and for 30 minutes but IT was one of the things that that caused a lot of problems and it wasn't until we understood that everybody interprets IT in a different way that we could actually start to use that as, as a meaningful piece of terminology. Because you say IT to some people, they think you mean the data center, the servers, the network. You say IT to somebody else, they think it's a department. And I think when you're talking about IT purely as a department, that's when you immediately get you know the business and IT. It's a silo. It's something that you have to ask for permission. So what what we said in the Verizon books is think about IT as an organizational capability. And what that allows you to do is embrace the technology, the people, the skills, the knowledge. All of that becomes part of IT but it doesn't then have to be segregated in a department. So if you think about an organization, what IT capabilities do we have? And I can look and say, well, you know, within within ITSM zone, we've got IT capabilities in marketing because our marketing executive is using social media. She's using all these analytical tools and these reports that she's pulling out. That's an IT capability that's essential for the business, as is creating e-learning, as is the website, as is our hosting company. We need all of these. Yes, I think you probably will always need an IT department, but the role of the IT department I see as changing to enabling the capabilities within the rest of the organisation. So you will always still need somebody who can say, you can't use that, it's not secure, or, you know, this one doesn't integrate with something else over there that you actually need it to be able to talk to. So I think you need that capability just as much as you need all your other bits of IT. You need something centralised, you need policies, you need principles, but the IT department could well shrink quite significantly because that capability is then embedded right through the rest of the organization. Anything where they're talking about IT in the business like it's two separate bubbles is is just missing the point. You know, our organizations now are highly complex, highly interconnected entities, and there is no one 
silo that completely encompasses a skill set. It's not just IT, you know, any organization that is having its team use social media has embedded a marketing capability throughout the business. Any organization that is allowing its people who are out and about working, you know, to scan the receipts, to automate the filing of their expense claims, you're moving that finance capability around the business. And this this is how it's going to be in the future. People don't just have one single skill set. They're involved in lots of different things and our organizational structures need to evolve to accommodate that. Well, on that note, I, I think it's an appropriate time for us to wrap up the conversation And I look forward to seeing you again sometime soon and certainly to talking with you, Claire. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening. You can find more information about HDI on the web at thinkhdi.com. I'm your host for Spotcast, Roy Atkinson. Until next time, take care.